0: Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of It's All Relative. I'm your host, historian and writer, Dr. Eliza Philby, taking a lighthearted look at the generation gap. Each episode, I interview two guests from different generations of the same famous family to discuss their contrasting lives, experiences and values. Now this episode is a goodie because we're delving into the world of music and its evolving place within the family and culture at large, with a Gen X father and a millennial son who in so many ways exemplified this shift. Born in 1963 in Manchester, Johnny Marr was just 19 when he founded the Smiths along with his friend Morrissey. Between 1982 and 87, the Smiths were not only one of the leading guitar bands in the world, but one that set the tone, fashion and mood of Thatcher's Britain. The quiff, the rolled up jeans, the overcoat. The Smiths were the complete antidote to the garishness of their new romantic contemporaries and remain iconic today. The band split up when Johnny was in his early 20s, but his music career, of course, was only just beginning, playing with the likes of Chrissy Hind and Noel Gallagher before launching a solo career. One of the most important duets in his life was with his childhood sweetheart, Angie, with whom he has two children, Sonny and Noel, our second guest. Nile Marr was born in 1992 in Manchester in a house which was part home, part recording studio, where there would be a carousel of visitors that reads like the who's who of 90s music. Perhaps it is no surprise then that Nal followed in his father's footsteps and entered the music industry. Nal released his debut solo album last year entitled Are You Happy Now? Johnny, Nile, welcome to It's All Relative.
1: Hi, Eliza. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Johnny, I'm really intrigued by the way that you've described growing up in an Irish Catholic home where Sunday Mass was never missed. And I just wondered if you could talk us through your upbringing um, and how it kind of shaped and influenced your music and, and your values.
1: Yeah, well, the first thing uh, is that uh, was, it was very, very, very working class. My dad would go, would be out. Five thirty-six in the morning and then he'd come back uh six in the evening and just black from head to toe uh, just covered in mud and dirt from digging and putting pipes down in the road and he did that for years he was like 19 when i was born you know and he only retired in his 70s and then my mother she had until my little brother came along she had a series of jobs she was always working she worked in She worked at a couple of bars and she worked as a cleaner. And so it was kind of, you know, seriously working class. So I think that definitely shaped my values because came the time when I was eventually leaving secondary school and going out in the world. I was part of Thatcher's Britain was kicking in then. So I was part of the first 1 million unemployed school leavers but the messages that I got from my parents were, well, people who, who signed on the dole have got benefit. Don't be thinking you're going to do that. You know, um, there's no, there was no question of like loafing about. <laughs> that that was just for students, like work, work, work. But the, good, the other side of that, though, is that my parents were and still are music mad, complete music obsessives. In their case, it was rock and roll music. You know, they moved over to the... Manchester in the early 60s. My mother came from a family of 14 and all of, all of them moved over. Uh, vibrant people who had just come out of the fields in this big city in Manchester, which they loved. And it was all about music, all about records, playing the accordion, playing harmonica, One of my calls play guitar. So I grew up around these very um, energetic and passionate young Irish people who were making their way in the world. The musical obsessive thing, I just, I saw it, and you know, saw adults playing the same 45, the same song 15 times in a row, you know, which my mother does now. She's discovered YouTube. So I learned all that in 67, 68 as a youngster and obsessed about records. Most of my mates, in fact, my people who are older than me, tell the the tale of they got into making music when they saw the Pistols at the Free Trade Hall at 17, 18. Well, I, I personally got into making music as a little boy five or six when the, the dad was like Johnny will play the harmonica
0: no I mean you're a child of the 90s you're I can call you a Blair babe because you know you gross <laughs> came of age in the 90s and <laughs> noughties and and your home life sounds very different how would you describe your upbringing
2: you don't really know any different when you're a kid you know I always sort of knew that we were different to like the other kids I hung out with and went to school with, um, you know, because it felt like, oh, we had parents that were up late at night and it was in a house where there was like lots of adults in. And say so my bedroom was above where everyone would kind of be in late at night playing uh, songs really, really loud. So it would always be like, well, you're not going to sleep anyway because there's just like a load of grown ups, like, playing tunes underneath it it was like normal family routine but then the topic of music would always be the thing that is talked about or being engaged with i I just didn't realize that other people say like didn't have other adults that lived with them uh, that weren't related and they were there to make music or just like hang out and be around music. But as a kid you just had like a load of really interesting people.
0: Sounds like a, a musical commune. That sounds awesome. Johnny, you once said that you felt that you grew up too quickly I and mean, the kind of things you were doing your in your early teens, all those misdemeanours in Manchester, you felt it was a, also a worthwhile apprenticeship. I mean, are you glad you were young when you were, you know, in and and the freedom that was afforded to you as a kid in the early eighties compared to now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For a number of reasons. I think A big part of the Irish uh, experience that I try to really pass on with my own children was this independence. When I was writing my autobiography, I had to really double check that um, the first gig I ever went to, which was a punk gig, slaughtering the Dogs in Manchester, when I saw the ticket and the date and then went back, I realised I was 12. And I went to that show on my own and I walked back on my own. That band were particularly known for these violent gigs, and um, I actually, when I was speaking to my mother on the phone, I said, you know? Do you remember when I went to that gig?" And she she had a sort of vague memory of it. I said, "Do you know? I was twelve when I went to that gig." She was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." I was like, "You know, I was actually I was twelve. I got in about one one a.m. and she was like, "Oh yeah, whatever." The independence I got, um, maybe it was to also tied in with the times, and you know, my parents didn't have a car, so I had to make my own way back from places, and and the times were different. The times were maybe they're either more innocent in this we're talking about in the mid 70s now or they were or they were just um less paranoid i don't know they were probably a little more innocent i suppose it's a subjective thing you think when you were 15 16 17 the best bands were around so i will say it was great because Buzzcocks were putting out the first album and magazine and blondie and these are, so to me there's a roll call of amazing music for a 16 year old to like but i'm sure niall we'll have a similar, well, I know he'll have a similar roll call of amazing music that he was into. But when I was with Angie, you know, as you mentioned earlier, who's Niall's mum, I met her at 15, just 15, she was 14. Well, the amount of times when I used to take the long walk back from being with Angie in the evening on a a very wet November night um, and I used to walk a few miles home, it's occurred to me that I'm glad I didn't have a phone I'm glad I wasn't texting. I'm glad I wasn't talking on the phone. It might have been less safe, but that's when I did so much of my daydreaming and my scheming and my 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 aspirations. I used to do this long walk on my own after dropping Angie off and I'd come up with chord chord sequences and riffs and it might have been less safe, but that's when I did so much of my daydreaming. I'd come up with chord sequences and riffs and I couldn't wait to get home and play them on the guitar. So there was many, many advantages to growing up in the 70s, I think.
0: No, I'm going to put this question to you then. Was, was mm-hmm. Johnny a strict dad? And secondly, are you glad you were born the time you were?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the earliest gigs I remember going to in, uh, in town was, um, I must have been 12, 13, and it was a band that both of us really liked, and they were over from New York, and it was to get into Night and Day. And uh, it was like, oh, okay, well, obviously it's a bar, it's an 18 plus gig. So try and, you know, try and go and walk in. And then they were like, obviously not. Why are we letting this kid in? And then it was just like, oh, well, that's fine. I know where the back entrance is because we've hung out here a bunch of times. So I'll just walk in the back. But like uh, strict, I don't know, like strict about some stuff. Like if I was sitting downstairs, like watching TV or something or like trying to play a video game. I'd get it like in my ear and be like, why are you not doing like schoolwork or or like things you're supposed to be doing. But if I was like in my bedroom trying to write a song, I'd never get like told to do your schoolwork. So I kind of use that as an excuse to avoid doing like all the things I thought were really boring. Cause I was like, Oh, my parents aren't going to, like they're not going to tell me to stop. So I'll just do that as a way of procrastinating or wasting time. I wondered
1: why he wrote so many songs. Very cunning. With- yeah. It's really prolific. Genuinely, it was,
2: it was genuinely that. But I think, you know, I, I don't know, like, I think it's easy to romanticize, like, the period that you're born in. I feel quite lucky because, obviously, I grew up with the internet and the, like, tank of a Nokia phone, you know. So, but, and then we had the, you know, then we had iPods. And so, like, I'm glad I had access to that. But it was still like my, my sort of heyday online was Myspace.
0: Myspace boy, huh? Yeah, it, mm. and
2: it, yeah, and I still have people that come to my gigs that's, that knew me from Myspace when I used to put music up there. You know, and I have relationships that I've maintained from people I met on Myspace. And I think growing up in a slightly more innocent way, uh, you know, innocent in relation to like social media and its consequences was quite nice. But... Then I see kids, how they can navigate society that is conducted mostly online and still be kind of well-adjusted and interesting and funny, creative people. I'm like, that's, I'm always like, that's pretty amazing. So I think it's just, you just got to. You just got to watch, you're not romanticising everything.
0: It's a really good point because I mean, Johnny, you're you know, the Smiths are often seen as are uh, lauded as a generational defining band that really caught the zeitgeist, created the zeitgeist of the of the eighties. I mean, could you just describe a bit about what it was like being in the band in the eighties and also how you were responding to the politics of that decade? Because in a way the politics was unavoidable, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I left school at sort of 15 to be in a band, but I, I was very aware um, that uh, my generation were um, the start of a, it, it felt like the start of something new. I mean, that was not only because punk had been such a big deal culturally and it was over, it was like, well, now what? The the generation I came out of, if you think of The Cure, The men, New Order, Billy Bragg, The Smiths, the mode. We didn't hang out with each other or very, you know, per se. But you would, you would just assume that all of those bands, Cocktail Twins, Aztec Camera, the whole lot of us, anyone who was in the enemy and on the John Peel show, it was a given that we were literally politically all in the same, fighting against the same enemy, which was specifically the government. And it was a very national crisis. To do, it was to do with unemployment. It was to do with unions being shut down. It was to do with a miners' strike, all of those sort of things, and the music press were complicit in that. So we were all literally on this, literally on the same page. I realised that we there was a political agenda there, absolutely. If you would have told me that 30, 30 odd years ago there would have had to have been a Me Too movement, I would have been, I would have gone, huh? So why is that? I was idealistic in that, but I never saw it coming. I would have gone, no, no, this is going to happen in the next few years. This generation, my generation of boys and girls, and they, they were reflected in the Smith's audience, by the way, I'm not talking about getting out and standing on a soapbox and marching. I'm just talking about equality. It just all the old tropes just seem to be, I, I might be being naive. But, but I mean, the music been...
0: industry has always historically been quite sexist. Maybe not in the fan base, well, but in the recording studio. Yeah.
1: Well, well, the way I didn't really see that, that much of it in a recording studio. I saw, um, as in sexism. When I think about those times and the fans and everything, there was plenty of girls of my age, and they all looked like us. And I think they had, they liked us because they thought we were like them. So let's put it this way: I was very optimistic that a lot of the old tropes, had, as I say, had had kind of were about to melt away. You know, maybe, but I was young. Maybe I was naive. You know. Well,
0: I guess you know this—the optimism of youth defines every generation. And now, would you say that music is less politicized? And if so, why these days? Because we are living in incredibly divisive times. Why is music, specifically indie guitar-led music, not as politicized as it was in your dad's age? I wouldn't say
2: it's less politicized, but I understand the angle you're coming at it. The further back you go. Guitar music was the staple. The formula since the Beatles has been like bands with guitars. You now have this hip hop is taking all the reins. Hip hop is is like holding truth to power. Hip hop's now becoming the cool currency for different classes, different races. Guitar music that's political still exists, but it takes less of a share What's a political act now that technology has allowed everyone to be able to create and put out music? So the act of like making deliberately lo-fi music, where it's like, I don't have to have a drum kit. I don't have to have a drummer. I don't have to have other musicians. I can just play samples. That becomes political. I bought a laptop. I can make music now. Whereas before you had this kind of slightly gatekeepy element to specifically guitar music because you needed amps you needed somewhere to plug in those amps someone to record you with microphones and things like that and now because you don't need it guitar music just takes up less of a share of what everyone is consuming but it's still it's still it's still there if you're a girl band making guitar music by doing that now that's become political because you're taking the share of guitar music that used to be like white dudes playing guitar particularly through the 90s that like 90s hangover of like white lads playing guitar in a very average way I love Britpop (laughs) just anyone who's doing it that isn't the trope that's political
0: do you think musicians have lost that edge
1: I don't think they've lost the edge I think I think Niall's right The,
2: the problem that you're running up against is the people that are in positions of real great influence who are raking it in these, these well-established, What what's his face? Take that Gary Barlow, is it? Who's, Whose heads like so far up the Royal family, you can't even find him. It's like, there are these, there are these people that are taking up the room and the space. Whereas before a really popular band, you know, pre-internet, like, like let's say the clash, you know, one of the biggest bands in, in England like the biggest bands in the world, super political. They just happen to be the what's played on the radio now. You know,
0: I, I can't Johnny. Speak Johnny, Fred what do you Sheeran, think about Gar- I mean, <laughs> Gary Barlow?
1: I think now, I think now's gone very yeah, easy.
2: No, I mean. th- so th- this is what I mean. It's like you could say the people at the top have got the, taken their foot off the gas because it's no, there's no imperative for them to rock the boat whatsoever.
0: I think Noel was spot on when he said we must avoid romanticising our youth and think it was the best time to be young. It's something we all do, especially when it comes to music, which is so often key to the formation of our early identity. Boomer rock and rollers have done it for decades. Gen X muses are guilty too. And millennials, as they hit their 40s, are also beginning to exhibit this first sign of old age. The music app Spotify is currently dominated with millennial subscribers. And can you guess the decade of music that is most listened to on that platform? Yeah. The 2010s, the music of millennial youth. Now, in 2017, the Washington Post formally declared the slow, secret death of the electric guitar, citing declining sales of the instrument and the fact that R&B and hip-hop had dethroned rock and roll as the most listened-to music genre in the US. I wanted to know what Johnny thought about the decline of guitar music and culture, especially as someone who had played such a pivotal role in its history. I think Johnny, you credit the Smiths as kind of being the inventors of indie music as we know it. Do you agree with Nile that you know obviously hip hop is now the mainstream dominant cultural force within music? Do you think the sort of conversations around guitar music being dead is being overhyped? And and do you think that music as a as a cultural force is no longer political and that's a bad or good thing? Well,
1: for many years, so you've got you've got to remember this is I know this isn't an exaggeration. When I first came out with Smith's first album, um, because um, there'd been electro. I've been asked from the day one, is guitar music dead? Because of the Pet Shop Boys, or because of Erasure, or because of Bobby O, or because of early electro, and, and then hip hop, and then, so, and then I was like, I was in, I was like, nope, nope. And I was right, you know, this was in 83, 84, 85, before there was a deluge of guitar music that, um and then in the 87 88 when rave culture came out and samplers, was i was always asked is it the end of guitar music nope and then in the mid-90s same again because of hip-hop was very 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 well established by mid-90s um and again no it wasn't because there was again there was this deluge so however i played at fuji fuji rock in uh japan about uh, 2017 tw- and on the day i was on there was n- there were no other guitar bands on. I think I was the only act who actually had guitars on stage. So that was the time when I went, ah, okay, if I was asked that question now, I would have to say, for many reasons, the reasons that Nile's given, uh, and a lot to do with technology as well, rather than it being an anti-movement against guitar, one of the things that has happened is, as is always the case, technology shapes the culture. And technology that is is now it isn't just about being able to record on a laptop things that make beats things for editing beats programs etc that exclude guitars are kind of sexy you know if you go into a music shop sometimes i look up at the horrible blue sunburst guitars the monstrosity that pass for modern design of guitars i look up at them and then then i'll go over to the corner and i see the dj section i kind of go I'll be honest, if I was 14, 15, I would be be tempted because of the also the speed at which not only is it a democratization of music, but the technology makes some of these little boxes that, that are out now. I mean, you can do it on your phone, as everyone knows. It makes the act of making your own track with your mates so instant. And I've got no judgment on that. You don't need to lessons. You don't need to learn chords. I think... It's less
0: fun. Well, th- that's the thing. It's democratised music. Has it given musicians more autonomy or less autonomy? No, do, what do you think about that? Because obviously you can, you can make music really easy, you can upload it really easily, but then you've got the, the digital age of, of downloads actually makes it harder to make any money out of music.
2: Well, I think that that's may, might be a generational uh, point because I've always assumed that you put out your music you will never get paid for it. I've always seen making music to put up on the internet as I'm just giving it away for free. I just assumed when you make music, people will buy tickets to see you play live. People will buy albums if they really like it. And this is what I think, like, guitar music now is just like a subculture as opposed to the mainstream culture. And that that's fine. There will always be people that like guitar music and want to make guitar music. But You just have to realize the share that you're getting is smaller. So I always assumed my music is just available for free. You know, yeah, you get like a really pathetic royalty check every once in a while, but it's so, it's so like insultingly small. It's not like I care about it, you know? So you just go, well, I'm just giving my music away for free because everyone's giving their music away for free. You just accept it. So if you can make music for Nothing just with your computer. You're putting it out for free anyway. Like, why should you spend loads of money trying to get like organic sounds in a studio you have to pay for? Like, why not just make it sound like purely digital,
1: you know? If you would have asked me when I was 19 about the democratization of music, I would have gone, fantastic, break the doors down, let everybody do it. But in fairness to the old system, One of the things that I was really quite privileged to have been involved with was all these people, Tony Wilson, Jeff Travis, Seymour Stein, uh, some of the DJs, Janice Long, Annie Nightingale, John Peel. Their role was a curatorial role. They were in it because they loved the music and often they brought, certainly in the case of Motown and, and black musicians in the 50s and 60s and 70s, they brought the Al Greens to the world, and they brought the that music to a wider audience and made legends. Helped Stevie Wonder be a legend. I could go on and on. Those people are now gone. So as I've said, me at 19, 20, I would have said, "Oh yeah, the democratization of music. There is not. There will be nothing wrong with it." But with it comes the lack of opportunities for some people because you're you're having to absolutely fight to be heard. It's all very well saying they stopped people getting in well you know it's now a, an ocean the democratisation means anyone can put anything out and you can argue that a lot of people are fighting to be heard music is is not the potent force that it used to be music, music culture is not the potent force it's quite that's i think that's definite but it's quite easy to look at that and think that's because music has diminished but actually i believe that that isn't the case. What a song will do for someone, and look look at the, what the world has just gone through. I mean, I know that music definitely continues to save me, you know, and I think it's no surprise that radio listeners' numbers absolutely skyrocketed, uh, not just because people were at home, but they were enjoying the, the need for music. One basic thing is that it's just, it's not just, but a big part of it is just down to choice. Since the post-war, music was not competing with anything on Netflix or binge watching anything that the digital revolution has afforded as YouTube on the bus, on the way back from work or school or whatever, you know, watching TikTok or whatever it may be now music is just competing with that. So really what I used to do and what I still hankered for and do try and make an effort to do is when one of my friends particularly has put a record out, I will listen to it from start to finish. And I actually really enjoy that. I don't need, I, yeah, I I like vinyl, but I'm not a particularly retro for the sake of it, kind of, you know, f- fetishist. So, but that takes 49, 50 minutes and people have got out of the habit of sitting and taking 49, 50 minutes to listen to a body of work. I don't think it's anything particularly sinister or diminishing about what a song does, but but the knock-on effect is just that the power of the image of a group, it isn't the cultural force it might want want to have been. However, um, youngsters do still want to grow up to emulate their idols, whether it's Taylor Swift or whether it's Jack White or whether it's Alex Turner or Nile or whoever. You know, so it's not it's not black and white.
0: I think you're right. Well, no, I think it's this with Spotify and, 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 and you've got the algorithm choosing quite often the songs they think you're going to like. And one of the things that strikes me is you look back in the 80s or the 60s and you could see sort of black and white photos of, of, of crowds of young people. And you could almost tell by their dress as to what music they liked and what tribe they belonged to. And you could probably say that in the 90s as well. And you can't say that now. You don't have that kind of... Those musical tribes and the cultural force that those tribes afforded, really.
2: I don't know. I, I, I wonder,
1: though. I, I wonder if you were 15, 16... Yeah, I'm not sure about the that.
2: Thing? The difference being now, those tribes exist more globally and it, all at the same time. So was, whereas before it was so local, pre-internet, now... Groups of Gen Z that are all in on the same joke, you can identify who's all in on the same joke. It's even changed in the way language has kind of evolved. Just look at memes. It's like a whole language that you're able to communicate with someone with loads of subtext background knowledge that just seems like intrinsic if you're in it.
1: We were discussing this the other night, weren't we, now? We were discussing the the codes, teenage they're codes. Still,
2: I think that, I think those tribes still exist. They just exist in different ways. And the fun bit is it doesn't matter if you're in Australia, you're in South America. If you're in on the same joke, you are all in on the same joke together. You know.
1: I know from my audience, people who are my age, they could say the same thing. I know of a lot of my fans who their kids are really into what I do and they're into guitar music. And and the parents have this dialogue with the children, and assume that all over the world there are a lot of musical families who share record collections. Niall turns me on to loads of stuff that you know uh, that he's listening to. We, so in our case, we've 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 just stayed. We were always going to be a musical, super musical family because we're really passionate about it, regardless of the fact that we it, we do it for a living. Loads of people listening to this will will be thinking the same thing. You and your kids talk about all kinds of different kind of music and it's a sort of dialogue. And I think that's a really good thing. I I really like that.
0: I think there has been definitely a a sort of intergenerational mashup um, when it comes to music. I'm just going to end by asking you um, some quick fire round questions. Um, First, that defined your youth and I'm sure will make listeners feel either really old or really young. So Niall, what was your first music purchase and in which format?
2: Uh, It was uh, Sea Change back
0: was it CD or um, vinyl? or
2: Would have been, no, no, it would have been CD. I mean, I had vinyl, but I didn't pay for them. You know? oh, right. <laughs>
0: and Johnny, what was your you know, first you music know. purchase?
1: My first music purchase was a T-Rex single on 45 Jeepster, but it, it was in the bargain box. And I bought it because it was, and it was a very cool first record, but I just bought it because it, it had a picture of him on the label. He just
2: looked great.
0: And now, what was your first job and what did you get paid? I got
2: paid minimum wage. And I used to sell jeans to people at Diesel.
0: Oh, mm, Johnny, you worked in a clothes shop first, didn't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, similar thing. Yes. Yeah, so it was just literally round the corner from where Niall worked at Diesel and his sister worked on the next block as well yeah. at Fred Perry.
0: Johnny, what did you get paid?
1: I got paid twenty quid a week and I had I had uh I had to pay my landlady, my rent was a tenner and my bus fare worked out about four quid and I had uh, a fine that I had to pay off that so I, w- I was running short but Angie had a part-time job in a hairdressers so we just managed to just about do it.
0: What was your first holiday without your parents and what did you get up to Johnny? Um,
1: first holiday I, I hitchhiked to Nebworth to see that because I didn't really have a holiday I hadn't got on a plane until um till the Smiths I'd never been on a plane but um I wasn't really big on holidays, but I, I went, I, I have to say, I went away for the weekend at uh, Hitchhiked Nebworth to see the new Barbarians and Led Zeppelin, I think, in 78, something like that, but I, I, I didn't come back for a few days. So that was the first time I, I, I took off yeah, you know, on my own. I was about 14. 14?
0: No, how about you? Uh,
2: I went on tour with uh, Warpaint on their first UK tour. How Band, old were you? And, um, I was 17, I think, 17, 18, and I ended up being their like crew. I was like, "You guys uh, should have someone like helping." And I was just like, "All oh, the gigs are cool. I'll just see you in the next town." And then by by like day three, I was getting calls from like Rough Trade, being like, "Are you going to be around for
0: the merch delivery?" Yeah, you ingratiated yourself and became the roadie. Brilliant.
2: Yeah, it just
1: became a job. He ran. He ran away yeah. with wall paint. He ran away with wall paint, yeah.
0: Final question. You are both products of the 20th century. If you could give one piece of advice to the next generation as they navigate the 21st century, what would it be? Johnny, let's start with you.
1: I'd say uh, the internet isn't the world.
2: That's what I'd say. Yeah.
0: That's a very good answer. That's what I'd say. No?
2: I I would go, not all clothes from the 90s look good. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's so just, true. Just,
2: yeah, I'm just like, I love it, but guys, they weren't all winners.
0: Do you know what, Narl? Do you know what that makes you? Yeah, go on. Old.
2: <laughs> oh, I, oh, fully. I fully expect, like, you know. Like, I'm starting to, like, make noise when I get up and everything.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much, both of you, um, for your insights and and your optimism, I think, actually, overall about the force of music and its, its power within families and for individuals and within society. It's been fascinating chatting to you both. Thanks a lot. Fantastic. Thanks for inviting me, What a fantastic conversation that was between a father and son. An intergenerational dialogue that was rooted not only in mutual passion, but also mutual respect. And also a humility and an acceptance that times change and it's pointless being defensive or romantic about the time in which we grew up. I want to hang out more with Johnny and Noel. Now to find out more about me and my research, do check out www.elizafilby.com, And if you can also find me on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at Eliza Philby. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and tune in to the next episode of It's All Relative.